John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1352.de1223 certificate number 18573 twilight you nicknamed my daughter after the Loch Ness monster i think we've observed before that generally generationally the millennials and generation z have been underserved chronologically by omnibus so far Right, we have a we have less of a tendency to talk about the Smurfs or Barney or what are some other Boy Meets culture? World. Boy Meets World. Um, Hollister. Uh, have we talked about K-pop yet? No, but we should. Well, that's a thing. Um, Blackpink. That's coming. We'll talk about that. That's coming for sure. Uh, what are some other um, millennial things specifically? We do one show for each TikTok dance. Right. Um, uh, uh, not very interesting car design. Yeah, that's that's what all the that's what all the high school kids today are saying. Oh wait, income inequality. We hardly ever. Oh wait, we talk about that all the time. Uh, do we talk about self care? Uh, only derisively. Well, I mean, you're, it's kind of implied. You you have like a big fuzzy leopard skin blanket on. I am currently wearing a fuzzy leopard skin blanket. That's kind of self care. It's kind of. I, you know what? I have a spa, you're- a waist down spa. For one. You're having a little wellness break over there from the waist down. Uh, But uh, a listener named uh, Sarah, who is a Patreon supporter of the show, uh, when asked to suggest a show topic, as is her privilege at her donation level, Mm -hmm. she asked if we could, in honor of her fiancé, discuss Twilight. She said she was open to anything. It could be the classic American books or films, but also about the time of day of Twilight. Oh, so if you have anything to say about uh, Twilight, the post dusk condition, um, I think Sarah would not mind. Uh, so, what do you think that's about? Is Twilight just a thing that, like, it's a word that causes her fiance <laughs> to become it's an ASMR thing? Yeah, like really, he's like, oh, it's their safe word for sure. Right? No, I think oh, I didn't want to presume that her fiance was a they, was a he. It, it is a single. E in the spelling here, I don't, you know, I believe they are not pronouned. Okay. Um, but a single E might uh, imply a, uh, a male fiancé. However, uh, I th- it does seem like mostly he's just a vampire guy. And vampires okay. have never made it into the omnibus. And, hmm, you know, the, as far as I can remember, 
maybe we'll get some corrections. The popularity of the Twilight Saga surges right around, it's right at the cusp, you know, the, it's, if, if you were in middle school in, say, 2008, that might have been the peak of it. The final book and the first movie came out that year. Are you saying that it is a, a particularly middle school type of thing? Like you get introduced to it when you're in eighth grade, but if you were 24, you wouldn't connect with it? Well, is it YA? That's kind of the... That's kind of the thrust of what this is. So, you know, by by appearing right then in 2008 to a high school, to a teen or tween audience, it really does straddle millennials and Gen Z. And please do not straddle millennials or Gen Z. You might go to prison. No, not me. They're very good about boundaries those those uh, and consent, those generations. But um, but it's been read by, the, the books have been read, the book series has been read, and the movies have been seen by hundreds of millions of people. YA is an interesting publishing phenomenon because it did not exist when you and I were YAs. No. Uh, Once you got to be a certain age, you just started reading books. In 1967, an Oklahoma 15-year-old named Susan Eloise Hinton wrote a book about two kind of rival delinquent gangs at a 1960s Oklahoma high school, very much like hers, which was sold to an enthusiastic publisher and released in the late 60s while she was still a teenager. I think uh, Hinton was still 19. Was still 19 when uh, The Outsiders oh, appeared on that's cool drugstore spinner racks in 1967. Written when she was 15. I mean, think about the precocity of that talent because uh, Outsiders holds up. Yeah, well, a pretty good movie. Good movie. Coppola made two of her movies, uh, books into movies, Rumblefish and Outsiders. Um, she's written since then, uh, Tex, Taming the Star Runner, you know, a bunch of other kind of beloved YA novels. And also, you know, well, into, she doesn't write fiction anymore, but well into her, in, in, in her, um, let's see, she's in her 70s now, made the decision to follow me and start chatting with me on Twitter, which, yeah. is, which was unbelievably uh, uh, flattering. For me, you know, she's a legend. You know, uh, when Roseanne Cash started talking to me on Twitter, she's your S.E. Hinton. I really felt like, hey, man, I really made it. Why do we all have these heartland women of a certain age? I don't know. Why do we just want these? Why do we want these seventy-year-old women from the Red River Valley to follow us on Twitter, John? What does it say about us? Well, and then when when I started talking to Martha Quinn, that's when I knew that. (laughs) You know, my niece Elizabeth Roderick is a YA author. No. Who's written, what's, what's her niche or her, her, her genre? Uh, I don't think it has a ton of vampires. It's nearly 100% vampire-free? Well, that's the thing. I'm, I, I don't know. I like a lot of vampire-free books. Um, I like uh, Catch-22. Has no vampires. I think that's right. I, well, Moby hmm. Dick, no vampires. Catch-22 isn't, uh, isn't... We're not counting <laughs> emotional vampires oh, here. I was going to say Zoroastrian, but no, his name is uh, Zor- Zoro, Zorathon. Yosarian. Yosarian, thank you. Uh, no, her books, uh, her, she's written like a lot of YA books, uh, and they are about love, I think. She has uh, titles like Love and War, Love or Money. That's what the A's that are Y are thinking about. You remember, you remember the big emotions at that age? Yes, but I expressed them by reading uh, 
National Lampoon. Well, that's the thing. You and I were uh, repressing our generation right. or our uh, our emotions under a layer of irony, as we had been taught to do. Yes, by the culture and the absence of our parents. In my case, <laughs> the emotional absence of our parents. You and I were raised by uh, David Letterman, and mm-hmm. uh, I think maybe uh, in your case, ACDC or Black Sabbath. Well, I, you know, I was thinking about it the other night. It was the Pretenders that really that that first Pretenders record. You were raised by the Pretenders. I was. I think Chrissy Hine played a large role in in. Uh, and turning me into the man I am today. Why doesn't Chrissy Hind follow us on Twitter? What a killer. Well, you know, she had a much younger boyfriend a few years ago and brought, hey. brought him here on tour. And it was really crazy. She was, she was definitely doing the like catfish thing. Well, this is great news for me that yeah. Chrissy Hind dates younger men. She's still, she's still avail, avails. Anyway, when Hinton wrote The Outsiders in 1967, it was not a big publishing hit in really? the, in the kinds of places people were hoping that you would buy you know, in the drugstore spinner act where they were hoping to sell a bunch of paperbacks. But her publisher noticed within a few years that sales were remarkably strong for a catalog title uh, in high schools. Like teachers and librarians were continuing to make the book a perennial seller and actually teaching them to kids because, you know, there have always been books about Teens. They got tired of teaching Holden Caulfield over and over. That's the thing. You know, when those books from the teen point of view would come out in earlier in the 20th century than the 1970s, they were just adult fiction. And kids would often get assigned right. a separate piece or uh, what was the one we just said? Catcher in the Catcher Rye. or, or uh, Carson McCullers. Right. A Hardest Lonely Hunter. Remember yeah. the Wedding. And you could go back further to Huckleberry Finn. It's right. funny now you there think you about go. the kind of books that got assigned to us in high schools. Uh, the educational institutions seem to have the feeling that teenagers would want to read about teenagers. Like, if we just give them Romeo and Juliet or uh, yeah. or Huck Finn, we can trick them into reading books because, man, these are people just my age. Uh, Do you remember first I, in hindsight, reading... that seems like an insane way. Like, teenagers yeah. don't want to read about other teenagers. No. We're surrounded by weird-smelling other teenagers at that age. Do you remember first reading A Confederacy of Dunces? How old were you? Ooh, not till college. Yeah, I got... I got turned on to it in high school, and it felt exactly right. Well, a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. You develop a sense of humor, and then that's what you want. You want f- weird and funny, but there are no teenagers in. For me, that was Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. And, and a lot of these books, I feel like in hindsight, that you really, in adolescence, just speak to you and have a voice you've never heard before. And whether that's Salinger or Vonnegut or whatever you just said, uh, John Kennedy Tool. Tool, is that his name? Uh, Please let it not be Ayn Rand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All those are good things because it means you dodged <laughs> that particular bullet. Yeah, Salinger, um, exactly. And you may have a girlfriend someday. You have to read Grapes of Wrath. I mean, you have to read Cannery Row. That's what I was kind of wondering. Like, which of these books hold up? And uh, because as an adult, I think when you go back to these books that are are kind of f- either from the uncritical adolescent point of view or uh, just have that kind of... Um, what ironic novelty that you might see in a, a, a Vonnegut or a Salinger novel. Um, they don't really speak to the adult reader in the same way. And have you read uh, Slaughterhouse Five or anything like that in recent years? Have you gone back? I, I read some of his short stories not long ago, and I was just thinking, you know what? This was the perfect writer for 16-year-old Ken. Yeah. But I think, you know, you used Cannery Row as an example. That's a book that I was assigned in high school that I think actually 
uh, I would still read today. Catch-22 is another kind of, this blows your mind in the high school library, but I think also it works for adults. Yeah, although the movie doesn't work for anyone, but yeah, the oh, I'll go to, I'll go to, I'll oh, ride for the movie. Wow, are you gonna ride for the movie? Yeah, I. Um, okay. I mean, you, are you one of these guys? It's a Mike Nichols Art Garfunkel <laughs> joint. Like, it's you got to watch it with uh, carnal knowledge. Are you one of the ones that will sit and argue about that one tracking shot as all the airplanes I, go? I, I do like that You're shot. Like, That's quite the a bit. only reason to watch the movie. It is insane that somebody gave Mike Nichols twenty million dollars just yeah. just because. And, on the strength of the graduate of Virginia Woolf. And he somehow found like 13 B-25s that yeah, still some, flew. Somewhere in Mexico. or yeah, Incredible. Um, but yeah, all these books that we're talking about, I read in high school, right? There's not, like by the time I was in college. They're good mind-opening first books. Right, 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 right. Like, look, but books I, have a whole hidden world and maybe it overlaps with your world and creates it. When I suggest them, you know, when I have put any of these books in front of my 12-year-old daughter, she does not yet have quite the sophistication to make sense out of Cannery Row. She's almost there. Yeah. But there's just a kind of a worldliness, I think. I mean, even uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, I think she's right on the verge, but a lot of that humor is referential, and a lot of it requires that you be just slightly more versed, I think. Well, there is this— Whereas The Hobbit doesn't require that. Yeah, I mean, The Hobbit is often considered proto-YA just because it's perfect for that niche. But again, this idea that you would need a separate kind of book for teenagers just didn't exist. Now, how does Judy Bloom play into this? Another huge pioneer. I guess we probably discussed this briefly in when we did Flowers in the Attic uh, uh, recently in the in the Jillian Hill show. Yeah. Um, like, those were, I mean, first of all, she was an author who wrote... Smart books for kids and the occasional smart book for adults. So you could have cross pollination. You could be like, "Oh, the library has this Judy Bloom book that I've never read about. Wait, it's called Forever, and it's about an adult." You know, and then suddenly you're you're off to the races, right? Um, then you're reading Irma Ber- Bombeck. But also, th- there was kind. There seemed to be kind of a social contract. Bombeck. <laughs> the rest of the show will be John trying to Ber- say Irma Bombeck. Nobody's going to believe you don't do drugs anymore. When, when I was really Biffer, peak Biffer, Irma Bombeck, and Bombeck. <laughs> that's when I that's when I was doing drugs. So obviously it didn't imprint. Uh, that's probably not a not an overlap that many people have. Drugs and Irma Bombeck. Irma Bombeck. Yeah. You know, my favorite book was Miss Manners' Guide to Impeccable Behavior. <laughs> at that time, I think you said so. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do an episode on that. Uh, why was I talking about this? Oh, um, there was knows. kind of this unspoken contract in children's books that they would never have any kind of mature theme reference to your menses right exactly so that would be the kind of thing that you know if um if there was anything puberty related in these books you know that's and then there's just generations of books that kind of treat growing up in a normal way you know it's not like island of the blue dolphins is not about growing up it's not like the the from the mixed up files of mrs basley frankweiler is not about growing up but there was just this accepted thing that uh children's literature for a hundred years would uh, be kind of devoid of the cares of the adult world. And that includes anything even adjacent to mm. sexuality. Right. Um, whereas when you're a teenager, what are you most interested in every hour of every day? You know, there's nothing more important. So there was this obvious market gulf where the kids are maybe not quite old enough to just start paging through their parents' paperbacks and find anything that actually interests them. 
but at the same time the the one kissing scene in every spencer for hire <laughs> paperback this seems like a very specific memory that maybe you need to tell us more about <laughs> Uh, but yeah, exactly. The books kind of forbidden adult books on a shelf. At first they're boring. Then there's something they represent maturity, but also, Ooh, when you find those parts, there's something a little tantalizing. Yeah. I think for my Spencer for hire might've been the empire strikes back novelization because there's kissing in it. Oh, uh, between Luke and Leia. Cause that's even more of an education. No. If you've seen Empire Strikes Back, you know it would be Han and Leia. Have I seen Empire Strikes Back? In the Millennium Falcon Back. with the wrench. <laughs> um, but the the book has a very kind of... Is that of, what he called it? <laughs> is that a wrench in your vest? It's, uh, it's The book has kind of a flowery purple prose. You know, whoever the pulp and comics author who wrote it, it's I know who it is, it's Donald F. Glott, who wrote the novelization has kind of a flowery romantic description of their first kiss. And as a kid, you'd never read about a kiss in a book before. So you were like, hello. Right. Whoa. This is, and a, you know, and if you were a group of girls, I don't know, you wouldn't have that book, but that's the kind of thing you would pass around. Tee-hee. I am a group of girls. Tee-hee. Is this what kissing is like? Yeah. You're a whole rhizosphere of, of middle school girls. Now, how do, how do those, in the 1970s, my mom's boyfriend, Norm, had four kids. Norm actually smoked a pipe. He was that Norm. Uh, he had four kids. He lived in a big house. His wife had died. And the oldest daughter, Terry, lived in a room in the basement that had no windows, a windowless room. Okay. She was the teenager. The rest of the kids were, you know, uh, Andy was preteen. Andy was a teen. And then uh, there was another one. And then there was another one. I don't remember. Anyway, Terry... The walls of her room were all shelves and they were covered with romance novels. Yeah. Uh, of, I mean, not of every kind. They all looked exactly the same, but there were, there must have been a thousand of them. They, that was were, my aunt and my grandmother as a kid. Romance novels. Yeah. Upstairs guest room is just lined with romance novels from all historical periods and all the lacy gowns you could want. And she was 14. And she just spent all day in her room, lying on her bed, reading romance Well, novels. in that period, not all romance novels were sexy. Today, these are kind of recognized as largely light erotica um, for for women who uh, enjoy, uh, you know, that kind of thing in a literary format mm-hmm. um, rather than a, a web video, a seamy web video. What makes it light erotica? He touched her with his, with his finger or <laughs> he could see her... I assume there's the outline of her nipple. I assume there's different degrees of explicitness. Yeah. What's the va- explicitity? Explicitity. Explicitity. Ooh. Uh, and so back then there were plenty that were just like full of you know stolen kisses and uh, right. and long looks out on the moors. Right. So she could have had those and not Mr. Darcy. And but you know but then I think there was kind of a for a while where they were both on the shelves, you know, the ones that have penetration and the ones that don't. Yeah. And they weren't labeled as such in the, in Barnes and Noble. That would have been weird. They didn't have a parental advisory. They were too busy uh, yelling at two live crew records. Where's your romance penetration section? Is it next to the romance uh, <laughs> kisses on the moors section? I mean, I don't know. You probably don't remember, but there was that phase where when cable TV first came online, there was the kind of, uh, like Cinemax 
version of softcore. Oh yeah, where they either took porn movies and they cut. They did these terrible like cuts. They'd be kissing and then they'd take their clothes off and then it would suddenly cut to uh, to a train going into a tunnel. Or there were those movies like the Emmanuel movies that like were kind of simulated. Uh, yeah, people in people in socks and whatever. Yeah, you never saw any any thing but but they were naked and they were cavorting i think you can imagine a lot of that uh, of you know 80s romance novels is maybe kind of the equivalent of that yeah where all, it's, all the it's millennials certain... are, are like i've watched people you know i've i've watched 1000 donkey videos uh yes. i have no idea what you're talking about this is very about. quaint <laughs> but yeah like imagine a version where the you know all the sex is taking place but it's it's much less anatomical right you know um anyway so yeah like so that's all that teens had but from this era of you know hinton into bloom and then into sweet valley high and all the rest you know romance is often the focus of this market niche it's uh, driven by teens and it's driven by teen girls and it's all about the the overwhelming emotions of First love and maybe melodramatic things that happen. A lot of them have love and death, love and terminal illness, love and uh, moving to Iceland. Um, and that was my story. And they're allowed to be sex adjacent, which children's books, you know, never were. Um, so suddenly, twenty years after America invents the adolescent, it actually invents books for them to read. But they're kind of ghettoized. It's not just like finding out on your parent's shelf that you might actually enjoy a separate piece or whatever. It's it's these are the books that are now marketed to you. And it's part of the extension and perpetuation of childhood in America where it used to end when you were 12 and then it was 16 and then it was 26. And speaking of which, like these books are not just read by teens. I mean, this is still a huge market sector. Um, I mean, Harry Harry Potter is probably the beginning of grownups not being afraid to be seen carrying around these books. Um, but YA is still a 2021 YA had its best year ever. 10 million YA books were sold. A lot of this is driven by teens, TikTok discovering their book talk, book of the week, and everybody's gotta gotta read these books and you know find out so because everyone wants to talk about what Penny or Clarice or whoever the character is is doing. Um, but in fact, some studies show that as much as 55% of YA is bought by post-teenagers to read to themselves. I mean, about 70% is bought by adults, but some of that is bought for their teens. Over half uh, now seems to be bought by adults to be read by adults. The most um, YA reading demographic is ages 30 to 44. So so speaking of perpetuation of childhood. Yeah, and... and, and uh, in addition to the sort of soft romance of it, is it also like a little bit of an easy reader? I think that's a lot of it. Um, in 2014, a cultural critic named Ruth Graham wrote a much discussed piece, I think on Slate called something, something clickbaity, why adults shouldn't read IA, YA or something. Mm. And her points were basically... This is um, this stuff's not challenging. It's not complicated. It's not nuanced. You know, you're getting, um, you know, basically it's just the equivalent of eating McDonald's for every meal. And second, uh, you know, these books are all written because they're written for teenagers. They're kind of written from this uncritical teenage perspective, with all the assumptions of adolescence kind of baked in as correct. 
And if you're 30, you should know by now that a lot of those priorities are, um, you know, don't work in the long term. And did this late article get 1,000 don't yuck my yum comments? Exactly. So it gets pushed back on 100 different axes. A lot of them are just like, don't be such a bummer. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Let, let people enjoy things. Oh, why is it the motto of our time. Yeah, let um, people enjoy things. But no! But no! But also plenty of defenses along the lines of um, you're, you're giving, you know, and this comes up with every genre. You're giving the genre fiction short shrift. This is a stigma. You're assuming that YA is not complicated interesting nuanced or cannot be um and i guess being literarily ableist yeah basically and there is something to the idea that like people do read to relax and if you're coming home after a long day and curling up with a book you do not want the the literary fiction police showing up at your door yeah (laughs) yelling at you because it's not uh because it's not all the light we cannot see or or whatever um you read AS, buy it, or we're taking away your kids. But and, and in fact, when you see when you see adults reading adult books in the wild, not not adult books in the sense of erotica, but in the sense of books for grown-ups, um, you know, if you're sitting next to someone on a plane and they're reading a book, it's going to be a Janet Ivanovich mystery, or it's going to be a uh, uh, Jack Reacher book. You know, it's not like they're reading books of great yeah purity and subtlety and literary. There were value. always very formulaic. Detective novels and spy novels. But I, you know, there used to be a lot of, what, uh, back when class distinctions were, were uh, uh, like arranged as a very clear hierarchy. That that, included literature, yeah. Yeah, there was a kind of aspirational triangle where the people that read the, the, the Times book review the London Times book supplement sat higher up on the hierarchy than the people that were reading Salinger or, you know, like there was Faulkner and then there was Vonnegut, you know, there was, it was, it was arranged hierarchically and just like classical music, jazz, rock and roll and country, you tried to, you tried to work in order to aspire to a higher station. Um, and I think in recent I've, times, there's so much anti-classism, so much association of classism with all of its worst aspects. Well, and to and to further that point, I think there's a lot of sense that when you look back retroactively, you see a lot of those class distinctions collapsing because the merit of the books turned out to be not related to their perceived um, what uh, respectability, right? You know, like it turns out that all the common people reading Dickens were right and all the rich people reading some now forgotten sentimental epistolary novel were wrong. Well, what's, you know, like I, when I was uh, going over my college transcript with my advisor, one of the 15 times that I should have graduated between 1990 and 2015 when I did. I discovered that I had a minor in Russian lit. <laughs> I discovered. <laughs> I had no what, idea. What a moment of self-discovery. I had no idea. I'd been just taking classes that interested me, but at, at a certain point they were like, you know, you have a Russian lit minor. You might want to see a doctor. And I, uh, and I remember, but, it, but that's an example of like, I certainly wasn't going to take enough modern lit classes to get a minor. And yeah. then, and then all the lit that didn't, that didn't warrant a, a class in college wouldn't have even considered it. 
and I was taking Russian lit because it was intriguing. You know, it was it was meant to edify you, right? You don't read Chekhov because you're like, wee! I still have that feeling sometimes I will pick up a book, and it won't be for socioeconomic reasons, but I will get the sense that this is not fun, and that's why I should read it. Yeah. Well, that, like, mean, this that, is going to stretch my brain or, or give me a lofty idea that the, the easy detective novel read would not. I transitioned at the end of high school out of reading for fun and into reading for, uh, uh, reading to self-improvement or yeah, to increase myself. Yeah. And, um, and then I think probably transitioned to nonfiction as part of that same process. Of like, now it's time to really learn how hydroelectric systems work or whatever, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, all with the idea that reading came with responsibility. And I don't know, is that, is that an archaic mentality or is it one that's just not, I mean, the abundance of, the abundance of fun, easy things scrolling past you on your device probably has made that a little crazy. The idea that you would read something a little bit boring or a little bit abstruse just to, because it's going to pay off at some way, some later point. That's not, that's not that fashionable. And I, I think no. that's why I do have some sympathy for the Ruth Graham idea that maybe you shouldn't read just YA. You know, that maybe that's a bit of a warning sign. If you're a 46-year-old and all you're doing is reading novels written for 17-year-olds about paranormal kissing ghosts. Well, it's the same with film. It's the same with anything, right? If you're only watching Marvel uh, sequels, or I think maybe only rewatching things that you know you already like. Right, you're not. What is it? What What are we trying to but, say? Living your fullest life. But do you believe in this idea of guilty pleasures? Like, is there something wrong with somebody just going down a ninety day fiance rabbit hole? No, I mean, not at all. I, if, I will, it's, if it's really good, is it a guilty pleasure? I'll sit and eat fourteen Reese's peanut butter cups before I need to go take a bath. Um. So no, guilty pleasures. I'm all about them, but. You 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 measure you they're measured you balance them out yeah I, I I've kind of had the same idea and maybe that's just an old fashioned Protestant idea that's gone that you should ever feel like well you wake up this and put is on a that little, hair shirt yeah this is a little you know nine day you know this uh, below decks uh, marathon is a bit much I'll um you know I'll I'll go read some Schopenhauer before bed I I just started rewatching Game of Thrones and prior to this. I only ever rewatched 30 Rock because 30 Rock filled me with such unmitigated joy that I went and rewatched it all again immediately after ending my first watch. And I felt so bad <laughs> until I realized that that 30 Rock was the essence of a guilty pleasure for me. Nothing made me come down at the end of a day and forget my problems more than watching Liz Lemon try and navigate her silly little world. And I've just started rewatching Game of Thrones and realizing that that show is really good. Every episode of it is really good. It's really engaging. It's not turning me into a genius. I just really like it. But if you admire the level of craft and... And the, you know, the way the writing and all the stories intertwine. I mean, it's really, it's quite an accomplishment. It's not just appealing to some, you know, base gossipy drive the way a reality show might. I mean, there is some sense of 
you do cra- think craft about and construction it. to it. But and it I, feels guilty. It's swords and sorcery. I get it. But it does seem like that ha- that's what happened with YA. You know, Harry Potter was the first of these mega series that adults would carry around. And those are really kind of tightly plotted little mysteries with clues and um, well-developed little, you know, kind of a Dickensian cast of supporting characters. Did you read all those and straight through? I have read, yeah, I've read every Harry Potter book. Um, and at the time, I was reading them when I came out, when they came out at the time. I mean, I, my mom was an elementary school librarian, so I was kind of an early adopter. And I was reading those in the late 90s, the, when the, whenever the first three or so came out in the U.S. Um, but when those became a mega phenomenon, suddenly every publisher is chasing the new series that you can place in every library and every kid is going to want, but also, you know, the kids are going to spend all summer reading, but that also their parents are going to be passing around and talking about. And they're, th- they're turf parents. And that kind of, <laughs> exactly. And not, they don't have to be turf <laughs> parents, but, but that gave us the world we have today where Hunger Games and oh, um, Maze Runner, and as we're going to discuss today, Twilight, are, you know, are, were kind of the biggest media properties for about a decade. Um, on, I don't think Hermione should have been with Ron. I just don't. I just feel like Hermione. Should we do a special Patreon bonus episode about your about your Harry Potter fan fiction? I feel like Hermione just had so much going on, and Ron was just you know such a like uh, stumble bone. I'm shipping Ron and that girl, the ghost girl that sits in the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. There She's, you go. She seems like she needs a friend. Hermione just was destined for better, better things, bigger and better things. Can you know? In this economy, building your brand and growing your business online ain't easy. Building your brand and growing your business in this economy? You want to do both things. You want to build your brand and grow your business online. You know where I would start if I wanted to grow my business online? I would want to have just a beautiful website. Oh, I thought you were going to say buy a brick and mortar building in a small Midwestern town and... And and do just start make selling pizza. Yeah, just start selling cupcakes. Make, sell pizza to college students. No, you're one hundred percent right. A beautiful, a beautiful website audience. is where you start. I want my audience to like my website. I went to a site the other day, and the website was so bad, I was like, I can't use this business. I punched out of there. What would you recommend, John? If I wanted a beautiful website, but I haven't programmed for the web as I haven't in like almost twenty years. Well, you could try and put it all together by. Finding a web designer, finding a graphic artist. I gotta hire somebody. All you gotta hire a lot of people and and try and get them all to work together. Or you can use Squarespace, which is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. The thing I love about Squarespace, the custom templates. Mm-hmm. Like this, it just it just looks good out of the box. You choose the look and feel you want for your site. Tell them what cat what you're selling, what your business is. Bam, they show you a bunch of templates that'll look great for your category. Well, and beyond the e-commerce templates, you also get inventory management, (gasps) a simple checkout process, and secure payments. It's all right there. All the e-commerce stuff is done for you. Yes. That's fantastic. Well, uh, maybe you're starting a business that's by appointment. It is, actually. I want to become an electrician. Oh, by appointment. By appointment only. Well, By yeah. appointment to Her Majesty. I'm not the kind of door-to-door electrician that just shows up and says, hey, <laughs> do all your light switches work? I want people to call me and I can say, yeah, be home between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. and I'll look at your light switches. See, I don't want to use OnlyFans. I want to start my own uh, by appointment. Um, concierge service. Concierge service, uh, like home living room steady cam dance party. Yeah. 
And Squarespace has all the tools I would need. What kind of dance, by the way? Oh, a modern. Oh, I, I interpretive. Was, I was picturing flamenco, but okay. No, it would be you know it's expressive dance, contemporary. Contemporary. So a Squarespace site will just have all the calendaring and schedule stuff built in for my mm-hmm. clients. Mm-hmm. Sold. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. So head to squarespace.com/omnibus for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use offer code omnibus to save ten percent off your first purchase of a website or domain. Headed there now. On June 1st, 2003, in a, uh, what I'm imagining is a... I remember it. As a, small, as a small McMansion in a Phoenix suburb. Uh-huh. In a post-Harry Potter world, uh, a housewife has a dream. She sees in this dream a, a beautiful sunlit meadow in which a, a sparkly, beautiful man uh, is, is wooing and kissing a young woman. What, what is the date? June 1st, 2003. What did you dream that night? Can you bring up your dream journal? Well, you know, my award-winning Long Winters album, When I Pretend to Fall, was released on May 6th, 2003. So I was on tour for sure that day. Were you in Phoenix on June 1st? I probably was. I probably was. Were you romancing the local a, Mormon yeah, housewives? I, I was. I was probably kissing a vampire. Pretend to fall tour. <laughs> Well, let's see where I was on June. You're saying June 6th. June 1st, 2003. June 1st. Um, hmm. Again, not clear how this is relevant to all the twihards waiting for us to, <laughs> to get on with it. But. You know, there are there are lists of all of uh, our tours online, but I can't find them right now. So anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh she awakens from this dream, as as sometimes happens to me, struck by a particular image which seems to have a kind of import that cannot be uh, captured in the explaining of it kissing teens but she's you know but and a, and a sparkling man a sparkling man in a meadow he's not sparkling in a metaphorical sense L- literally he appears to be covered in glitter like okay. he's just come from a pride parade yeah uh he was glitter bombed stephanie meyer is 29 years old she has um she, her husband i believe is an accountant uh they're living in phoenix so not a sparkling man well, I'm sure he's sparkling in some They appear to have um, a relationship that you and I would think of as unusual, but as we'll see in the Mountain West is not all that unusual. Uh, she's married to a, a man named, I think, Christian, who she has known since they were kids together, and they married at the age of 21. Right. Um, I think he's got a BYU accounting degree. This is not an unusual story in the American Southwest. And, no, uh, although the I Mormon find corridor. it very unusual. Uh, uh, here in Seattle, there is about 10 unusual things in this story. Uh, she does not have a job again, unusual. She's, um, she's got three kids under the age of five, super unusual, including a toddler. And she's always been creative, but at this point in her career as a, as a stay at home mom, that uh, manifests itself in a lot of scrapbooking with the fancy papers. She takes Um, a break from playing hungry, hungry hippo and very elaborate homemade Halloween costumes. Yep. For her kids, you can very much imagine, I think, this kind of stay-at-home mom. 60s mom. But she's got, but here, extending well into 2003 because she's living in the suburbs of a uh, largely, you know, she's living in this kind of Mormon-accented part of America. Yeah, the mall, the mall. She's living in the mall. Uh, And she cannot leave this dream behind. And it appears to have just, in her subsequent retellings and mythologizing, it appears to have just lit this creative fire in her where she suddenly has to unearth the story of who this mysterious, sparkling man is. She's never written before. 
Not that much. I believe she must have some kind of, you know, it sounds like fan fiction. So maybe she leaves out of the story all of the X-Files, uh-huh. Mulder Scully slash she's writing online. Yeah. Um, she. We do know she's in a writer's group. Okay. But it appears to be just kind of other moms of similar stature who have an idea for Hallmark cards or a book of Irma Bombeck-like uh, suburban adventures. Yeah, scrapbooking of another kind. Or fanfic. Yeah, exactly. That, that's well put. Um, and I don't want to be... Uh, Dismissive. I don't want to be dismissive or reductive of any of this, um, because uh, as we all know, what she writes just turns out to be catnip for for just tens of millions of of people. Um, but it's interesting that it's not calculated. It's it's not a uh, well. What are the kids like? Vampires. It's she that, just got hit by lightning. She, and she has an image, and she's got to get it. So she, get it out. So for months, she spends the whole summer, you know, dandling a baby on one knee and typing one-handed on a on a desktop computer or or, or, or whatever it is. Oh, I wish I had one-hundredth of that inspiration. I know. Uh, oh, to be a 29-year-old again. <laughs> uh, and the, the story just kind of pours out of her in a cascade answering the question of who this is. And she's because she's in this writer's group online, she knows what you do when you have a manuscript. You find an agent. Yeah. And, you know, some of these women have kind of friend-of-a-friend type connections. So she's able to send out a manuscript of her of her vampire book of her kind of unusual vampire book to 15 different online agents who accept that kind of thing over the transom online and one of them is actually interested she gets a nibble from an agent who says you know who probably sees what you and I can see in hindsight which is in the post harry potter world a lot of publishers are going to be ch- chasing this kind of uh unputdownable series and Within a few months, she has a three-book deal with Little Brown for $750,000. What? Like, this is not just a, well, well, we'll take a flyer on this. It's a it's a bidding war because a bunch of publishers are thinking, what if this is the next Harry Potter? How did it get in front of them all so fast? I mean, what this agent must have either been superhuman or they all were having lunch together at a... Like, I, I've told you the story of how the Harvey Danger record... Became a number one smash. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, Marco Collins, the the uh, program director at 107.7 The End here in Seattle, got this demo tape from local band Harvey Danger, and he really loved the song Flagpole Sitta, and he played it and got a bunch of requests. So he played it an hour later, got a bunch of requests, and then the following day went to a convention of radio program directors in Las Vegas, where... 600 of them sat in a big room and at the end somebody was like, well, who's got a song that is doing good? And And he had a story. He was like, oh, I got one that's blown up the charts yesterday. Well, I think publishing is still a small enough world that if, you know, if one house hears, hey, this other house is actually, you saw that letter that went out from what's it, you know, some small agency. I hear that, you know, this Simon & Schuster imprint is actually really serious about this. And then, well, we should take a look at that. You don't want to get left behind. And so I think the fact that she had eight eight firms bidding for the book is just kind of the way publishing works. Seven hundred thousand dollars. I know, and you know it's for a three book deal. She still has to write sequels to it. But were the terms of the deal good, or are all book deals exactly the same? I, I mean, think you get an I mean, advance, but yeah, the, I think the the kind of rights you retain versus what the, I think that's all pretty standard. I think all you need to know is that number, and that's an insane number for even a successful writer to get for a, right. you know, I, you know, 4%. Or, right. Uh, like I'm, I'm happy to get a 
much lower six-figure advance than that. Like, I, I would be happy, you know, I'm happy with a five-figure advance, and I'm a moderately successful mid-list writer. Um, but this is a first-time writer. Uh, wow. The books, of course, turn out to be the four-book Twilight series, which has since sold 100 million copies in the year 2009. Again, kind of the peak of the kids in their Abercrombie in the in the middle of high school is just pouring over these books and can't read them fast enough. Um, I mean, that's the thing. At that age, you care about things so deeply that whatever the book is you're passionate about, you love to death and you tell your friends and suddenly that's the kind of domino effect that a publisher would love to harness. And in 2009, the two most commonly given American baby names were Jacob and Bella, the names of Isabella, the names of the two of the, of the protagonists of the series. Um, Let me ask you. Yes. Have you ever read a Twilight book? I have never read a Twilight. I've never, well, I was going to say I've never seen one of the movies and that's not true. I watched uh, at least one or two of them with the, um, with the homegrown mystery science theaterization you can do, you know, you sync up the the comedians telling, telling the jokes and you can basically MST three K eyes. There's a, there's a few outfits that do this. Oh, Oh wow. I, I guess I've never heard of that. Yeah. The, the, the bunch of the former mystery science theater guys now put out these accompanying tracks so that you queue it up with your DVD and then, Oh, and I, you know, we play a, a- I think Dark Side of the Moon while they're doing it. Do you feel like you could sum up the uh, the accounts of the, the the plot particulars of the Twilight Saga? No, I know that it took place in Forks, Washington. Yes, uh, and I know that there are werewolves and vampires and straits and confusingly no Frankenstein's. No Frankenstein. I always thought that would be funny if she this new girl shows up at this high school and it turns out that the Warren cliques are uh, vampires and werewolves, but also there's like a group of Frankenstein's right. from up in Port Angeles that are always shambling around the school. And I and my understanding is it was set in Forks because it's cloudy all the time and that allows the vampires to walk outside during the day. Now, yeah, and this brings up an interesting point, which is often mentioned in conjunction with this vampire mega hit, which is the vampires do not act like the traditional vampires of folklore. The vampires in the Twilight world uh, can be out in the sun. They just sparkle, as per her dream. Uh, And so that would blow their cover. So what they have done is they have sought the cloudiest places on Earth to live. And uh, Stephanie Meyer had never been to Forks, but she had seen that it was like the rainiest spot in the U.S. As you and I know, it's out by the Olympic National Forest, the Ho Rainforest Got a couple of good hamburger joints. One of the few temperate rainforests on Earth. Uh, we'll talk more about Forks in a minute because that's our local Pacific Northwest hook here. But um, she went there a year later with her sister, I think after the book had been written and possibly sold and was delighted. She was like, this is exactly the, or so she says, this is the vibe I wanted. Right. But at the time she wrote it, she'd never been anywhere near there. Um, she was from sunny Phoenix, the uh, spiritual opposite of uh, Forks, Washington. Um, the, the, but yeah, the, uh, the vampires can eat, they have no uh, susceptibility to garlic, for example, or silver. They can see their reflections show up in mirrors. What if you uh, point a cross at them? I don't know if crucifixes come into it, although religion will later. Um, so, but do they still need to drink the blood of a virgin? The, this also diverges from most vampire lore. Uh, the sympathetic vampires in the book have decided to become ethical, uh, uh, you know, kind of the PETA equivalent of vampires, and they're only going to live on animal blood. 
which Ooh, is a real that works. It's the equivalent of becoming a vegan to us. It's a much, oh, it's a much, it's a shallow, awful life. But you're doing the right thing. Huh. Um, and it doesn't give them the soul sustenance that that human blood does. Uh, no, and other evil vampires worldwide are continuing their reign of of, of biting and vampirizing, mm-hmm. terrorizing locals. Um, we only know the only good vampires appear to be this little coven, uh, in Forks, Washington, who call themselves, they go as a, they pose as a family. They're all frozen at a young age. They, you know, the, in common with other vampire myth, the vampire, the twilight vampires become for ageless and unchanging at the, at the age at which they were bitten and became vampires. Right. Um, they're immortal effectively. And because these young, this young coven of vampires were all plausibly, high school aged they just pose as high school students as a family called the cullens uh there's another nobody notices that they don't graduate every four years they move around a lot the city of forks which has one high school they move around i think uh geographically from time to time they uh you know you may read these books and wonder why does this remote rural high school have so many vampires and werewolves in it and in fact if you were an ageless vampire why would you go to high school um, this right. is the kind of thing that in YA you can maybe get away with. I think Edward says at one point, well, if we went to college, people would notice sooner that we're not aging. So we start up at a younger age, stay around town for a few years, and then we have to move around. But why don't you just get a loft in Paris? Why do you go to high school at all? Yeah. Say you're homeschooled. Do, you know, well, no, do just, whatever it takes, Edward. If you're a teenager, you could slink around the streets of Paris, and you can carry silver so you could wear a lot of... You know, like you Jim could, Morrison jewelry. You can eat garlic. You can go live in Italy. Thank you. Most vampires can't. So there's also an Alaskan. You'll enjoy this. There's an Alaskan vampire clan that's also uh, ethical and is just uh, biting moose or meese or whatever. Up cool. There. Cool. Um, the rest of the vampire world is all uh, awful and uh, and killing wantonly. Where does Marceline the Vampire Queen fit into all this? <laughs> I mean, she just drinks red. <laughs> there is... Uh, this is kind of the Ruth Graham thing about you are reading these books written for uh, teenage dummies. And I think that's true. An adult would read these books and say, and be like, if I was an ageless vampire. Oh my God, the trouble I would get in. Why would I be going to high school? No. Whereas the young, the adolescent readers of this book are like, yeah, well, of course. Of course they're in high school. They have to hide in high school. They're they're like me. My high school could be full of vampires and Frankensteins. I can't live in Paris. Uh, Our. It's so weird because uh, Adventure Time is written for kids but uh it's or stoners <laughs> but, but it's just adults that i know that watch it uh, it's so i feel like I, I know more adults who watch bluey than kids um so there's but there, i mean a lot of this you have to admit a lot of this is a result of the kids entertainment getting so much better yeah that now it's actually it actually is like a well-crafted alternative in, in on many axes to well adventure time is a freaking acid trip that's not i don't know i don't know better Right, but you know, like compare it to any cartoon we had available to us, and you know, to the, to Sid and Marty Croft, and you'll see, you know, that was an acid trip. But um, I, I think I wouldn't rewatch any of that stuff. Bugs Bunny, you wouldn't sit and watch. Be- Bugs I mean, that's Bunny? the that's the Come exception on. that proves the rule. Yeah. Like I'm comparing it to like Deputy Dog. Yeah, you know, y- Yogi, uh, what a Hanna Barbera Laugh Olympics or something. Oh, boo boo. It's good. Thank you. So from 2005 to 2008, uh, Meyer releases one of these books annually. Twilight, then New Moon, then Eclipse, and Breaking Dawn. And they're all successful. Each more successful than the last. I think New Moon sells so many copies in one day that it's it might still be a one-day record for book sales, even above a Harry Potter, wow. um, at least domestically. 
the um, just to, so just to give a prestige to the books and annoy people who have actually read it. Yeah, here, I bet there are so many people that are mad at us right now. That neither of us know anything. About I'm this. not sure I've been wrong yet. Okay, but maybe they'll yeah. tell me if I am. It, the thing is, it doesn't matter what the plot. Uh, machinations of the particular books are and, Wrong. It, and in which book the evil vampires do which you know Wrong. in discussing this for future generations what's important is to kind of understand the context of how this why these caught on and what how they shaped their readers did you explain what werewolves are doing so that didn't even come up till the second book in, oh, okay. so in the first book uh a phoenix teen named bella swan uh, is forced to move in with her dad in Forks in Rainy Forks, Washington. I think. Oh, it starts in Phoenix. Yeah, I think her mom has re. Uh, she's a real fish out of water. Uh, her literally her or in water, I guess. Her mom has remarried a minor league baseball player, and that's just a kind of itinerant carnival lifestyle that's not good for any teen. So she has to go up to Forks, Washington, where she spent a little bit of her childhood, and her dad is now uh, law enforcement. He's a mm-hmm. he's a sheriff or a deputy or something. Mm-hmm. Um. She does not love her new school, but uh, there's certainly a cute boy who, even though she's just kind of a, I mean, she's kind of your replacement every girl teen. Um, as the a common complaint is that she's a complete cipher and that she never does says or thinks really anything interesting over the course <laughs> of uh, you know well over a thousand pages. Um, but part of the appeal of the books is that she is just a normal girl like you, the reader, mm-hmm. but the hot, brooding, Byronic boy in school, Edward Cullen, just is magnetically attracted to her. Oh, so the sparkling boy is what we're here to watch. Yeah, and when she later finds out that he and his siblings are actually not siblings and are, in fact, ageless vampires, you know, he's still fascinated with her. He explains that part of it is that she's got, <laughs> this is so funny, she's got O-negative blood. And he just cannot, the bewitching aroma of her is like a pheromone to him. Oh my God. I've been hearing about O negative blood recently. Or maybe it's O positive. From anyway, the woo. Whatever the tastiest blood is. The woo people What do they say about, about that Well, that it means that you're descended from UFOs or something. It's the what? The universal donor, right? Yes, yeah. It means, it means you should give blood a lot. If you, you know your blood O-negative. type? Don't. It's not awful. I don't either. We need, we should look this up. We need to get into this. I'm sure I have it on a piece of paper somewhere, but you'd think it would. You know, it's the kind of thing you might actually need in real time at some point, and I feel bad that I don't. We uh, should go. We should go give blood together, and they'll tell us. Oh yeah. For many years, I thought I couldn't give blood. By the way, because I'd lived in I, and I couldn't. I had lived in Europe in the 90s, and well, because of the mad cow count. scare, the Red Cross wouldn't let me give blood. But apparently, they lifted that like two years ago or so, two three years ago. If you were going to get mad cow disease, it would have happened. Yeah, they're like, well, it's been 30 years, and that all turned out to be like a one-week media scare. Right, so where we killed one million cows. I mean, the stigma against uh, uh, like gay would-be donors still holds from the AIDS era. Um, I'm going to put mad cow disease on, on my list. It's another one for the— List of diseases you would like to contract? Yeah, it's another one for the millennials. They love talking about mad cow disease. They just—so many mad cow TikToks, and uh, uh, this in the second book, she finds out that— um, the other, uh, another kid at school who has, you know, also been friendly with her and is kind of, appears to be kind of a rival for Edward, uh, a kid named Jacob Black from the local Quileute Reservation, is like uh, apparently the other Native teens a werewolf. Oh, it's the Native Americans that are werewolves, which you'd think would be maybe something you'd take a second look at if you were a, a diversity reader for Little Brown oh, no. today. Wow, it, it doesn't imply that the whole tribe is. Uh, is werewolves, but the tribe certainly does not love uh, what the books and movie series have done to their 
They put an alt? Don't? To, to the like in real life, they don't? Yeah, like the... Uh, oh, because all the nerds going out to Nia Bay and... Right, they've got, you know, a lot of their, you know, they're, uh, that tribal land there touches the Pacific, and a lot of yeah. those beaches are like their sacred places and, and where often, they would do ceremonies. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, they actually closed that road. Hmm. You couldn't go all the way around. They, they, they blocked it off and said, no, this is our space. So today, it's a bunch of uh, teens taking selfies on, oh. on some of their most sacred spaces. Um, so New Moon kind of develops into a rivalry. I think Edward has realized he's no good for her. He leaves town. Um, you know, he's, he's bringing too much danger to her life from the evil vampire uh, covens, the Volturi, and she's left with this other romantic rival, uh, a werewolf. Uh, in the third book, Eclipse, she ends up choosing Edward. You know, she and Jacob remain friends. The final book, Breaking Dawn, which is so much narrative that it's filmed as two movies. Like many of these book series, they get wider as they go along. Uh, <laughs> this book has just as much... So much banana pants stuff you can't imagine. Um, they graduate from high school, and as you do in uh, Stephanie Meyer's worldview, decide to immediately get married. Um, she marries uh, Edward, her sparkling vampire, at a very young age. They're finally allowed to do all the romantic things that his vampire restraint kept them from in past books. Um, uh, are vampires fertile? N- well... So here's what happens. <laughs> uh, vampires normally have, you know, unchanging ageless bodies, which means they could not, a vampire could not give birth. But he manages to uh, impregnate Bella with a human fetus. Unfortunately, the fetus is half vampire and is beginning to eat its way out. Ah. So he is forced to, va- spoilers, by the way, he is forced to vampirize Bella to give her the, the uh, internal fortitude in the books, vampirism is largely treated like being a member of the X-Men. Huh. You have a lot of, um, you, you know, you can jump around and do fights with the bad vampires. You've got strength, agility. Um, some of them ha- appear to have different individual mental or psychic powers. You sparkle. Everybody sparkles, which is, again, why they have to stay in forks so nobody notices because it's never sunny there. It's actually quite accurate. Uh, and uh, so by biting Bella... Uh, he is able to, you know, I mentioned that she's kind of a, a reader stand in like, what if the, what yeah. if the, what if the cute brooding boy in school noticed me? Um, her name is, as Mindy pointed out to me yesterday, her name is literally Bella Swan, beautiful Swan. Oh. She's an ugly duckling, maybe, but Edward sees the beautiful Swan, doesn't oh, he? Oh, beautiful Swan. Unfortunately, he puts like a vampire baby in the beautiful Swan, trying to eat its way out. He vampirizes her to make her resistant to its, um... To its chomping, even though the vampires don't have fangs, I don't know what's up. But vampires can't have babies, so does she? She's still growing the vampire baby. Yeah, no, I guess it's a once loophole. it's in there. Once it's in there, uh, she, um, you know, she is able to bring the the baby is born. She's super happy as a teen mom now. You know, she's, every teen mom super happy. Uh, she's got a baby that they name hilariously Renesme. It's like a combination of Renee and, and Esme. Sure, just a normal name in Forks, Washington, Renee Tell me you're from a Mormon suburb <laughs> without telling me you're from a Mormon suburb. You think Renee is a good baby name. Uh, and then, I, I think that, I don't know, at this point I should stop speculating. They live happily ever after. Renee maybe may get aged up supernaturally faster, but in, in any case, Jacob, her brooding werewolf ex, 
who did not get Bella. Um, werewolves, I think, uh, mate by imprinting. And he realizes that he imprinted prematurely on Bella. What he actually sensed was that he is destined to marry her baby. So her high school boyfriend um, uh, uh, is pitching woo to her infant daughter. It's crazy pants. Again, if this were not for written for 15-year-old girls, you'd wonder why it existed. And yet... Um, but vampires are are frozen in the moment that they became vampires. So why is Renesmee not always a one-day-old infant? Well, remember, she's half-human. This is the Spock thing. Uh, gotcha. for, for plot purposes, she can be human when convenient. Does and, she sparkle? And vampire when convenient. I bet she does. But just a little. I bet she does. Again, the specific incidents of how they take out the evil vampire coven in the final uh, confrontation, not... Super interesting, but the books apparently are written in a kind of a, you know, if you look at, I, I looked at some of it last night and it, it's not, the prose is often uh, poo-pooed by critics. It's, um, what what would you say, straightforward and unadorned at best, or, or you know, it's serviceable at best and, you know, kind of awkward and... Um, Typed rather than written. <laughs> I guess that would be the snobbish way to put it, yes. And, uh, and plenty of... Critics have objected to the books on those grounds that it's, you know, there's lots of kind of florid gothic. She's always swooning and gasping and jolting awake from nightmares and uh, heaving. Is there some heaving? You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's what you'd expect from somebody who came up on chaste romance novels and uh, the chaster kinds of fan fiction. Um, but apparently she just has some genius for plotting where this, this story that rolled out of her also has the same effect on the reader. You are propelled through all this incident, not with lots of kind of cool, complicated side characters and backstory like a Harry Potter book or, or, or you know, possibly the wide canvas of Hunger Games, but really just laser focused on this weird gothic uh, fever dream that really puts the reader in that time, place, emotional universe and makes the books unputdownable. Now, did all four of them get made into movies? Yeah, in fact, they were made into five movies because they split up the second book, as as I believe Harry Potter and Hunger Games both did. And were they successful movies? Uber successful movies, um, largely on the strength of the of the built in book audience. Some of which were now older. You know, the books, the movies came out what uh, kind of in a four year gap from their corresponding book. So you now have an older audience bringing, you know, dragging boyfriend to it, for example, or, you know, maybe second husband in the case of <laughs> new boyfriend in the case of the adult readers. And so does she now live in a seven-sided lighthouse made of dreams? Or is she like living in a mall community in Phoenix still? I believe she still lives in Phoenix. Um, but yes, she has made untold wealth from these uh, addictive... YA paranormal books, which have these kind of glossy black and red covers so that you can immediately see them and think, that's it. That's my, that's my vibe. Um, they have changed the town of Forks, Washington. Uh, it was a kind of a dying logging town in the nineties. I don't know when you first went to Forks. I actually hadn't been out to the peninsula as a kid. I, I went for the first time maybe a decade ago. Um, I would still describe it as a dying logging well, that, town. So that's the thing. So so when the industry went away, they pivoted to Olympic National Park tourism, and that apparently was good for 2,000 visitors a year. Yeah, right. That was the number of people that were 
you know, prepared to actually do all that hard work. Because you can get to the whole rainforest without stopping in Forks. I think you'd have to want to be going to some of those to Rialto or, or yeah, if you came down from the north, first or second beach or whatever. Like, um, and when the Forks books came out, suddenly it was the it was the equivalent of every kid that w- was begging their parents to go to Disneyland in 1958. Oh right, it's all these kids that are like, we have to go to the all these girls with lace fingerless gloves. <laughs> right, they need to see the real Forks. And the town saw the writing on the wall and thought, we can save our town, you know, because it's, it's, it's boarded up. Yeah. It's boarded up convenience stores and stuff. And now... Do they all put glitter on in the morning? They went from 2,000 visitors a year to 70,000 visitors Whoa! at the peak of Twilight Mania. They Whoa! very cannily uh, set up organized tours. They started to get um, uh, uh, memorabilia from the filming of the movies so they could display... Here's the costume that Robert Pattinson wore. You can see the tag. Oh, and again, the movies were powered by the the two leads, the Bella and the Edward, actually having a real-life romance. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Robert Pattinson dated Kristen Stewart for many years, so it became tabloid fodder. Again, more license for adults to follow teen paranormal romance. Um, and the town of Forks uh, ate it up. They, they have a visitor center where you can see real stuff. But every business now, you know, the... The, the liquor store is now, the wine store is now werewolf wine or whatever. And by the time I first drove through it, it was already like this. And it still kind of had the, I think they've kind of plateaued at 40,000 visitors annually. So it's still enough to keep the town on a lifeline, but it's still a really off the beaten path, end of the road kind of a place. It's a long way to go. It's a long way from even, from anywhere, even from Port Angeles, you got to. From Tipperary, especially a long It's way. extremely far from Tipperary. It's very far from Point Nemo in the in the center of the South Pacific Ocean, um, and uh, you know I read a business case study of of how the the public private kind of partnerships that led to this and the Dracula you know the Dracula the, the vampire signs up on everything, and the the conclusion really was that you know the the local business owners who had access to bank loans made out really well and saved the town, but it was kind of a rich get richer, poor get poor kind of a thing where a lot of that, there's a lot of poverty and deprivation yeah. in that part of the peninsula. It's near uh, reservation land um, with all the, you know, kind of the problems that challenges that that implies. Um, they were so, smart to take advantage rather than turn their backs. Although my experience of Forks now is that a lot of businesses have like separate doors that locals can go in and get. Oh, is that right? Get, faster service kind of thing like if you're you have to you have to put your hand under the thing and see if it glitters yeah there's a general kind of cut the line thing for locals i would say a lot of vacation towns have that vibe yeah but it's it's very overt out there (laughs) because you can just tell who's from there right that the town itself is so small you don't you don't have to put up signs like have you read twilight yeah if so go in the long line yeah, if you walk in and you're wearing a Filson shirt, it's pretty, you know, it's like, oh, you're from here, or at least from around here. It's to the degree that if you look up uh, FAQs online about the Twilight movies, they will include questions like, is Forks Washington a real place? Is Rainier beer a real beer? Barely. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. Anymore. Brewed in California now. But, you know, everyone is like, could I have the same beer that Bella's dad drinks in the Twilight movies? We had a babysitter. uh when our kids were littler, who was always talking about how she would just, I just kind of want to just wear normal clothes and maybe just drive a beaten, an old beaten up truck. That's kind of my vibe. And Mindy immediately was like, oh, 
so you're reading Twilight. You know, she uh-huh. she could see that the, the kids starting to imprint themselves on, uh, on Northwest Life. Bella Swan as a as a tastemaker, and all her all her particular choices would be reflected in their lives, even for these Seattle kids. This uh, here says Kristen Stewart was in 2012 the highest paid actress in the world. Wow. I mean, and you got to admire somebody, both her and Pattinson and a lot of the Harry Potter actors, maybe because they had it made at a young age, are now just like, what's the goofiest thing I can do? Like, I want to be a, I want to be a character actor in a Softy Brothers movie. I want to play Weird Al Yankovic on Roku. Um, you know, they, all these actors are um, kind of eschewing move their movie star status and making really interesting movies. The, um, it's been, it's been, it's been like, you know, now that it's been a decade or two since Twilight, there's been a lot of kind of retrospective looking back at the phenomenon of the books and the adult appeal of the books. And a lot of the criticism then and now revolved around the seemingly pretty overt conservative ideology. The Twilight books are not particularly woke. Let's put it that way. I would like to point out that Stephanie Meyer spells her first name S-T-E-P-H-E-N-I-E. It's not Stephanie, it's Stephini. These are the kind of unusual spellings that you would not blink at if uh, we were recording the show in, in Mor- Blackfoot, Idaho, or, or possibly even you know other kind of conservative parts of America. Maybe there's similar phenomena in uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. I don't know. Why? What's the matter with you, normals, uh, irregulars? A lot of uh, a lot of prefixes and spaces and accent uh, marks on on Utah names. Uh-huh. Um, so, so you're saying that it is revanchist? It's easy to make the argument, especially because they had a punching bag, and you know, it wasn't just an unintentional, uh, possibly. You know, it, it didn't just seem to be possibly an unintentionally uh, regressive uh, ideology in the book. You could actually say, oh, the author is a, um, not exactly an icon of feminism, you know, a suburban Phoenix Mormon housewife. Um, So when you read about the, you know, the gender roles in the books are pretty obvious. This stuff is not hidden. Again, Bella's a bit of a, Bella appears to have very little agency, except that, um, What's interesting about her is that a boy is very into her, mm-hmm. and that appears to make her life suddenly um, dazzlingly, wildly full of uh, emotion and incident. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just kind of a submissive, love-struck kid, uh, and the two of them kind of have a what we would call today as a toxic or codependent relationship between her and this older, a uh, hundred years older almost, <laughs> um, kind of predatory and even abusive boy if you look at the the 15 am i in an abusive relationship uh questions released by the national domestic whatever hotline um you will find that bella and edward's relationship appears to meet all 15 of them he gets mad and punches through walls and you know and and it doesn't mean that the books are bites her and turns turns her into a vampire well no he's full of restraint that's part of what's well we'll get into that in a second the books are an but before I get to that, you know, just the idea that, you know, you know, these, this is as old as literature, these kind of brooding Heathcliffian men. Right. Um, but in this case, particularly, you know, him punching through walls because he just loves her so much, but he can't have her or, you know, 
I think he throws her through a glass table at some point. You know, hmm. it's not it's not what you might want your daughter modeling her her idea of romance on. Right. Um, but again, that's a stupid. That's not a marker of you know how many. I don't know if Pride and Prejudice or <laughs> or any of the Bronte novels would would hold up either. Well, and and from what I understand, uh, all relationships now are toxic. Is there any relationship between two people that can't be described as toxic in one way or another? What's well, you, a, what's the definition? Got, I mean, you, other than set, you and Mindy, you just got to set valid boundaries, mm-hmm. and you got to have a lot of honesty. Mm-hmm. Got to have a lot of uh, affirmative consent and. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're definitely more aware of these issues than we've ever been. My sense of the the way your and Mindy's relationship stays so strong is that she just tells you what to do. She put, Well, no, I think she puts up with me. Oh, there's that too. I guess that's a tired trope now too. I guess we're supposed to stay away from that. The the She puts up with me. The hapless husband who's like, boy, I, I don't know why she's with me. Are Wah. you kidding? That's like 80% of my personality now. Sure. Oh, where are my keys? And oh. It, but it's also every American sitcom and Jim Gaffigan routine yeah. for the last 20 years. And there's there's some thinking that it's infantilized men, let them get away with all kinds of pedestalization of of women and forced helplessness and all the emotional labor not being done by them. And that's not wrong. Yep. Yep, yeah. Confirm. <laughs> yeah. Which of those things do you disagree with, John? Mm. <laughs> Speaking of Edward's restraint when he's not, you know, punching through walls or putting Bella through windows, um, you know, because uh, he does not want to vampirize her, uh, he's always bewitched by her unexplainable ugly duckling beauty, but also the scent of her O positive blood. Mm-hmm. He can't. This becomes a. Which is hotter. Extended abstinence allegory, Um, which I'm sure we can all agree, you know, powers a lot of super hot fiction past and present. Sure. But, you know, if it's coming from, again, a a religious housewife, it's very easy to paint as kind of a regressive view of sex and, you know, not the kind of thing we want to lead with with teens is, um, you know— is just uh, basically save it for your wedding. Basically, night? yeah, the day after you graduate from high school, and again, there's whole, there's that she gets married as a teen, she's a teen mom, and it is all just a beautiful dream because she's finally with her sparkly high school boyfriend. Again, not maybe not the blueprint you would want for your daughter. I wonder if there is research could, that could be done, research to be done, if there was a. In the same way that the, I'm sure the, the there, baby names took off. Well, yeah, in the same way that there there are probably a lot of ten year olds right now named Daenerys. <laughs> right. uh, I wonder if there were a bunch more young marriages in a little cluster of kids that came of age in 2007. Whether there were a you know a bunch of them that got married at the age of 20. Well, the thing is, outside of your liberal bubble, John, yeah. I mean, I think Mindy and I both have plenty of cousins who did get married in or right out of high school to the great relief of their parents. Like this kid's going to get knocked up in a Ford 150 if we don't, right? If we don't figure this out, and uh, you know that's just not unusual for a in a suburban Boise or Mesa, you know, high school, right? Um, I stayed a virgin until I was 26 because sex would have gotten in the way of drugs. <laughs> That's your abstinence allegory. <laughs> I'm busy. This, this drug wants to have sex with me, but I can't let it leave me alone. And then finally, and then finally in the fourth book, of course, the idea that this, this fetus is literally eating, you know, chewing Bella up from the endometrium out 
And um, what's that an allegory for? Well, it's there's clearly a, a you know you could read an anti-abortion message into it. The fact that oh. she's decided she's going to have her baby at all costs, including risking the life of the mother, vampirizing the mother, if that's what it takes to to give birth to her perfect teen baby, which she would never consider any other alternative as to having. I see. So it's easy to read the the kind of the conservative social ideology in the book but yeah you mentioned whether there would be any observable actual effect on teens and and i don't know how much i buy all this just because is mormonism still the fastest growing religion in the world i feel like that's more of a 70s or 80s triumphalist thing like gen x remembers those days but it's been surpassed by nigerian episcopalianism well, like there's no growing religion in the world so oh i see like there maybe we're shrinking the least but growth in latter-day saint growth now comes from developing world, right. West Africa, South America. Um, it is the opposite of growing, I think, stateside and in Western Europe. In stateside, it seems like Christian nationalism is growing really fast, or maybe we're just seeing them now. Does that count as a religion? I mean, they go to mega church, but, you know, before uh, before they go to Shoney's every week. Yeah, but I'm not sure what book they're reading. It's not the same one I'm reading. Anyway, uh, it just kind of seems like as literary escapism— you're you're going to get in trouble very quickly if you say, "Well, this is a bad guide for for teen romance." Like, to what degree? I mean, teens are not idiots. Like, they read these books and they their hearts may flutter and they may pass passages back and forth about about Edward's beautiful yearning and. Uh, but I think they also see the world, and they they know that these are these are a certain kind of fantasy and one that it would maybe be a little sex negative to say. No, don't have your, don't have your um, yearning teen fantasy. Don't have your sparkly vampire fantasy. Don't have your rough werewolf fantasy. Maybe it's actually more sex positive to applaud these teens having rich, uh, sparkly fantasy lives with their anime and their Twilight and whatnot. It's it's strange because all, all the statistics now seem to indicate that that millenniums and uh, Gen Z are having less sex than any teens prior. And there's also all that uh, hand-wringing talk about how they are all watching hardcore pornography from a young age on their iPad. It turns out we know the cure for high school sex. We just needed to give them Pornhub all along. Yeah, it's just like crime numbers. You know, like, it feels like the teens are out of control and being preyed on by evil satanic forces. Who cares if the numbers actually... Show the opposite. Yeah, either that or, you know, you're inoculating teens with uh, with overexposure to dirty movies. Just give them uh, the idea that uh, there's a sparkly vampire in a meadow somewhere, and they'll, they'll hold out for that, I think. And that concludes Twilight. Entry one, Twilight, a thing neither of us knew anything about. Entry 1352.DE1223. Certificate number 18573. In the on. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at, at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Our address for email was the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Uh, you can hang out with other futurelings on Facebook, Reddit, TikTok, and Discord. You can send us real mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Sounds like 
You've got some mail over there, Ken. Kathy, who uh, I believe may have been the one who suggested the O'Shaughnessy Dam as uh-huh. an omnibus uh-huh. topic, thanked us um, for uh, for talking about something near and dear to her heart, and in fact sent us a. Uh, we a, mispronounced the name of a tribe in that episode, and we did angry. I can't remember what it Californians. is. Californians, um, but we uh, she sent us a card uh, from the Restore Hetch Hetchy uh, Consortium, nice of some kind. That appears to have uh, not just a watercolor of the Hetchy Valley and Reservoir on the back, but a poem. Should I read the poem? Do. It has been a hundred years that my heart was buried in the still water. Every evening at sunset, I see a thousand cranes rise from the reservoir, and on their wings the valley empties. In the morning, the bears dream of their... Oh, the dream is a verb here. In the morning, the bears dream of their return with sapphire eyes uncut on salmon's tooth. In a thousand years, the liquid granite will begin to forget the thirst strains, marring the holy bowl across the outstretched song of the river, beneath the arboreal pulse of the restored place that was meant for sky, not flood. Hmm. Meant for sky, not flood, John. Restore the Hetchy Valley. Here, here. Thank you, Kathy. Um, if you are not going to send any money to restore the Hetchy Valley, or even if you are, please consider uh, giving a little bit to patreon.com slash omnibusproject to help us keep this show on the road. Like Sarah did today in suggesting this very topic. Thank you, Sarah. Listeners from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. Boy, what if our last show is about the Twilight Zone? Possible. Anything's possible. If Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry, which might be about the Maze Runner. In the Omnibus, 